Hey, everybody. This is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations, and um, today's Wednesday at 2. That's when our show runs now. It's changed, and I hope this is uh, good for um, a good number of you. So um, we have a very special show today. I'm, I'm very excited about it, and I owe a big debt to the New York Times reporter Rachel Swarns, who actually initiated the report that we are following, essentially, on our show today. And that is um, uh, a a very, very um, moving, dramatic story, especially as I learned just a few moments ago that uh, some of the people involved really were taken completely by surprise on this. So we are talking about a big story that ran in the New York Times. There's been two stories now over the past week about Georgetown University in Washington, D.C.'s sale of slaves that the Jesuits who ran that school owned and who sold to Louisiana when they needed a little cash. So, you know, you and I might today, um, oh, I don't know what, sell an old car, sell some jewelry, some furniture. They sold people. And um, some of the descendants of those slaves that were sold here in Louisiana um, have been traced. And I'm fascinated to hear the story of how that happened. And um, um, we're going to hear about that from three people we're going to have uh, in, in our discussion as we go forward. And, and one is um, Sandra Thomas, who lives here in New Orleans, works actually with Councilwoman Nadine Ramsey. Maxine Crump, who's a broadcaster and a community activist from Baton Rouge. And also a gentleman by the name of Rothman, George Rothman, who is a professor at um, Georgetown, who is very much involved in the whole discussion of what is the right thing for Georgetown to do to address that history and the contemporary results of it. So we're going to get started right uh, off the bat with Sandra. And let me see who I've got on the line. I think it's... um, George, or should I hold on for a minute on that? Okay, I'll just... Oh, Maxine is on. Perfect. Okay. Hi, Maxine. Hi. Were you able to hear my introduction just now? Yes, I did hear it. Okay, great. So now I have both you and Susan um, online. So let let me start with Susan, who's in studio. And um, we were talking for just a millisecond before the show began. and and, And I was thinking, well, you know, this has been kind of in the works, so maybe she heard about this or had some glimmers of it before it broke and the answer was no and so imagine picking up the newspaper and learning your personal family history what was that like well Jean, thank you for having me this afternoon and it's sandra <laughs> did i susan. say susan again i'll, I'll <laughs> be calling okay. you susan sandra for the rest of my life I, my brain that's, works that's that quite way. all right that's quite all right um i, I answered to I, anything with a j <laughs> well i i read the new york times and when i saw the sunday times what struck me was the picture of immaculate heart of mary cemetery 
And that's always been referred to as our family church. My great-grandfather, William Harris, his brothers and brothers-in-law, they founded that church originally. The original name was St. Mary's Chapel. So naturally, in, in that picture, I could see where he's buried. I could see his tomb. I know the, ro- I know the rose. I know who's buried there. What and a so, feeling. And so I was, wow, you know? So then I, from there, I went to Mr. Rothman's, um, to the website, rather, Georgetown's website that Mr. Rothman is involved in. And I looked at the 1838 sale, and I'm going down, and I see uh, Betsy, wife of Sam, Harris, and I know that's my great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents, rather. So then I contacted Mr. Rothman, and I gave him like a, just a vague, uh, not fully fleshed-out family tree, and he said, yes, you're, you know, you're a part, of this, a part of this group. And at that point, they only had the sale from 1838 and I think a later sale, like an 1859 sale. But by the time you got to the 1859 sale, um, Betsy and Sam had William, who was my great-grandfather. He's listed on there as one of their children. And then also I saw... So he made the voyage, too. No, no, he didn't make the voyage. They oh, were he, here by then. It's oh, a okay. series of yeah. sales. The voyage uh, was in uh, 1838. Uh, right, right. But then just to, to know, perfectly know well that this is my family. And then also I see his wife, my great-grandmother, Charity, age two listed with her family in the 1859 sale. So, yeah. So, anyway, it was, um, gave me chills. I was just going to say, chills. I'm having chills right now, but you have to just tell me what, take, know, it, take it further. What, what, how did you feel about it? What? Well, at first I was just excited. I said, because if I look at this and I can get to Sam and Betsy, I can probably get to the generation before them because I didn't know anything about the generation before them. So that was that was exciting for me that those records were there, but also it clued me into my family's Catholicism. I mean, I'm a lapsed Catholic, but my family was always very much into the church. My father was an altar boy. My brother was an altar boy. When the church flirted with altar girls for a brief second in the 70s, I was one. You know, we always, they always gave money to build churches, even during times when the churches were segregated. I mean, my mother was very angered by this. My father was tithing every week to build a church that we had to sit in the back of, you know. So, um, so it explained a lot to me about how strong the faith was, you know, and I guess because they had been indoctrinated for generations, you know, for a hundred years, you know, and in, it's in so, that faith. It's, it's so fascinating. Uh, I've always been amazed at the connection between the Catholic Church and the African-American mm-hmm. community in New Orleans. This mm-hmm. That connection is not a, a connection that I'm familiar with for, from where I come from, which is the East Coast, New York. And that's another reason why I just assume we were from Louisiana. Because mm-hmm. this is the highest concentration of black Catholics in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we have to be from Louisiana. We're ba- black Catholics. We're real Catholics. You know, a priest, there was one priest who used to come to my uncle's house every single day and visit with them. But aren't you, you know? fascinated as to why the church was so set on proselytizing slaves, yet treated them as less 
than humans. I, I just have so much difficulty it's, with that. It's about building numbers. The church is also a business, you know. And it's about building numbers. It doesn't make any difference if you think that they're subhuman. If you think that they're subhuman, you still want to increase your numbers. I mean, that's that's the way I look at it, you know? Maxine, how about you? What happened when you... Ha, tell me about the moment when you got the news. Um, I got a call, uh, and a message was left by Richard Cellini. And, and by the way, I'm I'm uh, thrilled to hear Sandra because I went to church with the Harrises, and I knew Mr. William Harris and and all of the Harrises and friends with them went to school with them. So it's kind of exciting to me to hear Sandra. Well, those are my cousins. That William Harris, those William Harrises that you know, those are my cousins because after my great grandfather's murder, everyone in his family started naming a child William Harris after him, and it's come down through the generations. But I want to ask you a question: What is your relationship to Leroy Crump? Uh, that's my father's first cousin. Uh, oh, okay, two, because... Two he, Crump brothers' children. Okay, because he and my dad were best friends as, as boys in Marywin. In fact, I brought a picture for you, but you're not here, of the two of them together. Oh, yeah. gosh, I want to see that. Yeah, yeah, they were great, great friends. And then later in New Orleans, they lived around the corner from each other. Tell you how small the world is. Anyway, wow. but continue, continue with what you were saying. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I, I got a call from uh, Richard Cellini, and, and he met, met the message and mm-hmm. indicated that there was some information involving Georgetown that could be connected to my family. And so I returned his call, missed his call, and then when he called me back, I was on the highway, uh, what we call the Rosedale Road, on my mm-hmm. way to Maringuin, Um And then he explained that um, my ancestors' names were on a roster that indicated that they owned by the Jesuits who ran Georgetown's farm. And when he said Cornelius Harris, Cornelius Hawkins, okay. well, here again, uh, it stood out to me because the name Cornelius was in the family. And, of course, I knew that my uh, grandmother was a Hawkins. And so it, it, it immediately said, I, I, you know, there's something here. And so I was just uh, caved in with, with emotion. Uh, because it was just a just a, a load of emotion that ran through me. Uh, very excited to know a door that had been opened to my ancestor that I never thought would be. Also, like Sandra, it confirmed why we were Catholic mm-hmm. and uh, and devout Catholics at that. So yes, uh, it was quite a tremendous um, message for me to get. So, 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 ladies, both of you, where, where do you go with this? Where, where you've been thinking? You have to be thinking about this a lot ever since this happened. Oh, listen, mm-hmm. I am thinking about it a lot, but not so much where to go. I mean, it's it's sort of like someone just told me that some great news, and now they said, "What are you going to do?" I said, "Wait, I'm not through processing the news." Yes. So part of that's happening. Yes, I have been thinking ahead, but not in a planning sense. It's just that it's just uh, so much process and i don't want to just leap out there and and be messy right i actually didn't i assumed that and i didn't mean planning but just how are your feelings about this and your thinking about this progressing over the days since you learned it well well gene um it's really very very much in flux because as uh georgetown releases more documents you find out more information like once they put the next two, once they put the manifest of the Catherine, Jacks, Catherine Jackson 
on the website and I saw that, it, it showed me that at the time of the sale, it's a five-month gap. At the time of the sale, when they're listing all of these individuals, you see my great-great-grandparents with two daughters. But by the time they get to the manifest of the Katherine Jackson, there's a five-month-old baby, which means that at the time of the sale, when they marched them from Maryland to Virginia, she, she had just given birth, or she gave birth along the way, or she gave birth on that ship. You know, and so that really, that really, really, really impacted me more than anything as, as a mother and as a woman to see what she's going through being ripped from her home, probably the only home she's ever known, in an advanced state of pregnancy and then set on the road to go to some place she's, she's never even heard of. Probably. And I'm sure she may have heard of it, but it couldn't have been good things because, as was noted in the article, um, the quote, and I don't remember whose quote this was, but the further south you went, the worse it was for slaves. So to know that you're not going to a better place, you're going to yeah. a worse place. And the life expectancy for slaves in the cane fields was always very short, very short. If you were you relegated to the cane field, but they, but then again in a, in another uh, document they published a newspaper uh, uh, article listing them for sale. They I learned that my great great grandfather was a blacksmith. You know, next to his name with him and his family listed, you know, I learned that about them. I learned that he had a trade, you know, that he that he wasn't a field hand. So I learned that, you know. So as they keep releasing documents, you get more pieces of the puzzle and then it wells up again, you again in you emotionally and you're just hit with all of these different things, you know, you know. I've got a caller, but I want to make sure I, I do right now. If I just press two, I won't lose. Okay, you're going to put, thank you. I'm not technically proficient, guys. You know this if you listen to my show. Um, sir? Yes, yes. Good afternoon. What's your name, please? Black uh, Latino. You know me as Rudy Mills. Rudy Mills. Oh, my God. Rudy Mills. One of the yeah, first people Mills I ever met in the state of Louisiana from way, way back. Rudy, what? Yeah. what but I, I just have, I just have a, 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 a question, really, a curiosity question. I heard the name Crump mentioned not too, uh, a few minutes ago, and I remember the Crumps, some Crumps in New Orleans who used to do the hog cracklings. They had a place on Washington Avenue. They had a place on Almonaster right off of Prayer Street. And the one on Washington Avenue moved up to Claiborne and Napoleon after a while. I was just wondering, was these ladies know about that or were they related some kind of way? And we I'm going to leave it at that, we, okay? We did We did have some crumps in uh, in, New, in, in uh, New Orleans. I don't know which ones did the hog crackers, but I know that that was uh, a practice uh, of the crumps in Maringouin. They would do the boucherie in the fall of the year. So probably the same one. So, so this is this is like a a, a big reunion here, <laughs> uh, right as we speak, real time on the air. We're we're seeing all these connections between people. Um, uh, Maxine, um, back to you. Thank you, Rudy, for uh, pointing that out. Um, so I, I wanted to hear just a little bit more again uh, about how after you first heard the news. Um, what you what you were feeling about uh, um, this news and 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 how your thinking is evolving? Well, New York Times focused on my great great grandfather Cornelius, 
but he was uh, he was 13, and and his parents were also on the boat, uh, Patrick and Letty. And uh, it's my understanding that Letty was also pregnant, just as uh, Sandra's great great uh, grandmother mentioned. She mentioned her. Um, so, um, I, you know, I have that feeling too, traveling in this stressed state while pregnant. And uh, Cornelius being 13, um, really probably frightened as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of people hearing that his parents were there would somehow think that's comforting. I think they were all so stressed and so traumatized, and so there was no comfort at all for any of them. Um, so I had that. And then I had the, 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 I, the thought that, oh, my goodness, you know, when they, the, at the end of the sale, the 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 cost the money the money today would be three point three million dollars, and my thought was, you know, you are selling people, and you mentioned that, and and can you even process this in your mind? But then I thought, you know what? I know that America has spent a lot of years convincing the society that the Africans whom they had enslaved were less than human. And therefore, they were built for this. And it had been all yes. the scientific, bogus scientific back, and that had proved this. And the Catholic Church was was complicit with it as well. So I knew the church was complicit with slavery. What I didn't know is they were involved in selling them. And then that, so that just struck me that the church has an accountability, that Georgetown has an accountability, mm-hmm. and and that this has been hidden so many years. And also that uh, if someone had written. A $3.3 million check or whatever was the equivalency in 1838 to bail out, uh, Georgetown, their name would have been on a building there or in some prominent, uh, location. And so I, I feel like this, this was this, they're, they're now benefactors. That sale makes them benefactors. At the very least. At, At the, the very, very least, least, as well as a part of the Georgetown family since is my understanding that the Jesuits called them family members of Georgetown at the time. We're going to um, uh, be hearing uh, shortly also from uh, Mr. Rothman from Georgetown, where they are having a discussion about this now. And and you'd think maybe that discussion should have happened before now, but... Sometimes that discussion doesn't happen until things go public, right? And well, so, I'm, I'm thankful for the students' protest. I'm thankful for the president who um, uh, is supporting this study, and for the, the Georgetown Memory Project by Richard Cellini. That that it's happening at all at this time, I'm excited. What, what, um, I'm going to take a call and then I'm going to go into, uh, I know you're not quite ready for this, but I, I, we do want to talk about, um, I want to talk about that transition that happened from slavery to freedom in your family also, and then I want to talk about going forward. So hold on, let me just take Seku on line two. Hey, how you doing? I was fascinated. Uh, Gene. Yeah. And the two sisters up there, right? They're not sisters, but they yeah, clear. Yeah, no, well, actually, sisters. Oh, sisters black woman, and another black sense. woman is a sister. Yeah, you sorry. understand? Some of understand what I mean. Yes, sir. I don't necessarily mean on saying family bloodline, but I'm saying for as our experience as a people, we brothers and sisters. But anyway, yeah, I read that article in the. I think it was the Time Picayune uh, yeah. a few months or so ago, right? Well, they they yeah. carried it in the yeah, Times Review of the book and. Uh, 
the, the research and stuff is a pretty good article, and it caught my, my attention. As you was anything related to our people catch my attention. And I just want to count and I think one of the, one of the natives there was a TV reporter for television, Baton Rouge or something? Yes. Yeah, you was you your picture was in the paper, in the article, and blah blah blah. You know, so I just want to compliment y'all that y'all followed through, and I understand, Gene, you the one initiated hooking them up and having this uh, this discussion right now. Well, you know, Sanku, it was easy for me because the hard work was done by the reporter. For it was really the New York Times that broke the story, and then the Times Picayune carried it. So um, I'm always in deep admiration for. <clears throat> The New York Times and how they get ahead of the story, and you you do know that the the man who was literally the editor in chief of the Times Picayune today is Dean Bakke from oh, New yeah. Orleans. All right, but I mean, so. I just you know you got to take some credit. No, you you took the initiative to connect up and bring them together, yes. and the, that's one of that's part of our African fragments, our our sense of people as a history, and uh, hopefully that uh, y'all can continue to pressure. And your family continue to press the joy sound to release more of them documents to tell the, the complete story. Y'all have a Thank good you. day and a beautiful future. Right on, right on. Have Thank a good you. day. Peace. Thank you, Seiko. So, yeah, let's, let's, let's deal with that, that transition from how folks went to in, enslavement when you have no control over your fate to the moment of freedom and the stories I'm sure you've heard from your folks about this and how they turned that into a positive and productive future. Well, Reconstruction was a very great time for my family, for, for William and Charity This Harris. is Sandra talking. Yes. Um, my great-grandfather and his brothers and brothers-in-law, they were able to amass large tracts of property in Maringwin. My great-grandfather was elected to the police jury, to the school board, out of slavery. He accomplished all of that. Now, once Jim Crow got its firm hold on in about 1900, there were um, reversals culminating ultimately in his murder by a white man. But, you know, but that was a great time for my family as far as growth and expansion. And we still do own property in Maryland, Louisiana. How, but, how were they able to actually secure the property? Well, let me tell you how they did it, because this is a famous story. They worked together. My great-grandfather, his brothers, and his brothers-in-law, if one of them saw a piece of property that they wanted, they would pool together and get it. And then eventually, the one who wanted it would buy the rest out. And that's how they did it. That's basically how they work together as a family, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, um, this will sound kind of weird to say, but uh, when the Korean population and the Vietnamese population now in New Orleans first came in numbers to, I'm familiar with it from New York, and of course it was here too, the way they have been able to bootstrap their lives and communities and families is the same way by working together. They mm -hmm. pool their capital, their resources, their intelligence, mm -hmm. and support each other. And that's but so But just critical. know that that could only happen during Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. It was definitely different after Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. so, so what she's talking about happened during Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. and, and so my, my great-grandfather, Austin Hawkins, also had 100 acres near the Harris mm -hmm. property. But he was swindled out of it, down to 12 acres. How did that happen? 
well, I don't know how he was swindled out of it, but my dad used to tell me that you know, he had 100 acres and he was swindled out of it down to 12 acres. Well, yeah, we lost all our timberland that way with lawyers, with lawyers after my great-grandfather's murder and the lawsuits began to fly. And instead of taking fees, they took half of his acreage, all yes. of his timberland. <laughs> It's That's what was taken. It, that was taken by the Lord. In exchange for something they AKA mm-hmm. a swindle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And and so okay then there's so there's that phase. There is the Jim Crow phase, and then comes what? How do do the family members continue to dig out? And I'm going to join Mr. Rothman in just a moment onto the show. Who's 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 on the line? Mm-hmm. But um, I, I still am trying to understand these phases of of. All right, so we go into this very bad period, and I don't want to open up a big controversy on this, and I'll probably get phone calls. But I supported the removal of the of the statues, and the reason I did is not for them, them and themselves, but because they were put up. The motivation is the issue, not, I mean, everybody says, well, where are you going to cut it off? And Andrew Jackson was a slaveholder and so on. But they didn't put the statue up of J- Andrew Jackson as a deliberate expression of wanting to return to white supremacy, which is the underlying of, of the um, statue. So Jim Crow was a really bad, bad time. How did you folks get through it? Well, one of the things that my grandparents did and deliberately, my grandfather was a school teacher in Maryland, but he didn't want his children educated or to stay in Maryland. So what he started doing was sending them one by one to New Orleans. It was a place called New Orleans University. It was a boarding school for black children. And he was sending them here to be educated. Then after a certain point, uh, when he had four of them, he said it would be cheaper for me to get a house and have my grandmother come and live in town with them, and they could go to school here. He wanted them out of the country and into the city, thinking that things would be better for them there, that there would be more opportunity, you know. So, you know. Is that true? I think so. I think so for them, you know. I think it was, you know, yeah. It was, it was, it was a good move, but then, but they always still had that tie to place. I mean, my dad said the day after school ended, she'd put them all on the train and send them to Maryland for the summer. You know, and when we were coming up every summer, we hosted a big Fourth of July picnic in Maryland. We always had that tie to that place. That was the special place. That was home. But he wanted a bigger canvas for them to paint on. So my grandfather sent them to New Orleans. Maxine, what about you? Um, the time during Jim Crow, how did we survive? Uh-huh. Um, you know, I think that uh, Catholic uh, had um, ha- had supported them in believing in God so strongly that I think part of why we didn't hear much about it or anything about uh, the great great until now is because they had been convinced that that was their lot in life and that the church had supported them in being enslaved. So in, when they were laid off after the slave system ended, some people said free, it was actually laid off, except for the short reconstruction time. Um, I, I think it, that it sustained them because Catholic Church uh, educated its, its parishioners. And so they had, and I don't mean by sending them to school, but they had an education about understanding uh, levels of how to live quality lives. And I, I just think that that supported them in, in many ways. 
I am going to add um, uh, George Rothman in because I don't want to keep you ha hanging on the line any longer. Are you there? Ah, uh, yes. Thank you. Right. Uh, have you been listening? Have you been able to hear the show so far? I have. I have. So we, we've been moving through Jim Crow, and now here we are in 2016. Uh, Mr. Rothman, what took so long? Uh, that's, a, that's a difficult question. Oh, let me just say uh, I really appreciate you having me on the show, and it's been really extraordinary uh, listening to Mac Maxine and, and Sandra tell the stories of their families, which are just deeply inspiring. So what took so long? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because the, the, the history of the sale of the slaves um, by the president of Georgetown is Excuse me, Mr. Rothman, can I yeah. ask you, I think maybe you have the radios turned up still, and that's causing some feedback. Uh, um, no, there's some, I'm sorry. No? I, yeah, I don't have anything on. Probably okay. just my line. Okay. Go, can continue. you hear me? Oh, we can hear you. There's just a little bit of an echo kind of thing, but go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry about that. No problem. Old, go old ahead. phones here at Georgetown. Um, yeah, the story, this story, this history has been known for, for actually decades at Georgetown. Uh, uh, faculty, um, historians in the 1990s wrote about it. The American Studies Program uh, created a website with documents uh, that, that, that told the story and was actually part of our curriculum. And uh, that sort of faded out. Um, and I think every generation, in a way, has to discover its history for itself. So what happened here at Georgetown was this past year, uh, a building was being reopened, uh, named after Thomas Mullody, and uh, who was the president of Georgetown who sold the slaves in 1838. And our current president, Jack DeJoya, uh, thought that this would be an important time to reflect on that history and to try to recognize and acknowledge it, perhaps in a new way. Uh, and so he launched um, you know, a university-wide conversation and exploration of Georgetown's own involvement in the history of slavery. And that is what has led to all of these rev these amazing revelations. Hello? Hi. Hi. Just want to make sure you're still there. Yeah. Um, so um, all that time that that discussion was going on, was there any uh, effort to try to reach out to some of the descendants during that time? And by the way, I just want to comment to everybody that Professor Rothman is actually a, hi a history um, uh, professor, and, and he has written books about the history of slavery. Um, uh, one of the titles is Beyond Freedom's Reach, A Kidnapping and the Twilight of Slavery. And um, this, is, this is an area of expertise for you, but um, no contact with the, with the descendants? No, there hadn't been any contact with descendants. I think that was part of the story that just... Uh, was basically off, off the radar, off our historical consciousness. Uh, I think part of that is simply not knowing that it was possible to uh, trace uh, trace descendants to today, uh, not knowing Even how that they could were be records? done. You know, um, and part of it was just a, just an indifference. I think um, more interest to the story of the Jesuits than the stories of the people that they owned and sold. Um, but I think the way we're thinking about history is changing. And t so tell me about the conversation that's going on now. And, and, and obviously the next question is 
what happens now? Now that this is this, the story is out. Yeah. You know, the curtain has been pulled back, and um, it's it must be deeply embarrassing, really. Even though there was a conversation going on and people knew it, but now that it is common knowledge, how are folks up in Georgetown feeling about this? And what's the thought about how to acknowledge this history and um, the people? who enabled your college to go forward that were sold in Louisiana? Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of emotions. There's a lot of emotions at, at both ends. I think there is probably some embarrassment that uh, people associated with Georgetown uh, were involved with this, committed this really heinous, uh, this heinous act. Uh, there's disappointment that they, that they didn't... Uh, <laughs> That they that they they didn't live up to what what we think the demands of conscience would have uh, required, um, I think. But there is also a tremendous curiosity to know more about what happened. Uh, there is um, a, a desire, yeah, a desire to learn um, and to reckon with the implications of all of this history for Georgetown. So, how do we recognize it? How do we recognize this history in a way that will be sustained? So future generations of, of Hoyas, as we call the people associated with Georgetown, won't, won't forget it. Uh, so these are the challenges that we're wrestling with. Um, but I, it has been absolutely fascinating and incredibly important, I think, for us to hear from the descendants themselves, or to hear from people like Maxine and Sandra, uh, with their point of view, their perspective, their stories of uh, the impact of what happened a long ago on their on their families uh, through time and generation so, so is there rewarding. is there any a sense um, of, of a debt owed to the people again who whose sale enabled the university to go forward I, I can't resist asking and I'm sure yeah. it's on the minds of the descendants yeah I mean I think a lot of people have that sense of a debt. Uh, how can you not have that sense of a debt when it becomes clear that it was was the sale of those people in 1838 that basically saved the university that that pulled it pulled it out pulled it out of its own debt, you know? So the people in 1838 were sold for about 115 thousand dollars in 1838. That's a lot of money. Uh, you know that money went somewhere, and uh, you know it, that kind of capital doesn't really die. It never goes away. You know, it continues to sit there and accrue interest and and that sort of thing. So um, I think there's a literal debt, and there are more symbolic kinds of debt as well. Um, debts of uh, recognition, I think. So, ladies, let me ask you a question, Adam. In this process of you all trying to determine, you know, how to atone, what is yeah. owed, have you all involved any of the descendants in this process? Uh, I think in well, the answer is formally no. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we when the president established the working group, you know, I didn't think that anybody really knew who the descendants were or that they that, that you all were out there at all. So I think for us, it's been a learning process as well. well what's uh, that program called? Ancestry dot com. <laughs> I mean, it's not as hard as it I used mean, to I be, mean, is it? No. I, I mean, all kidding aside, had any effort even really been made 
to 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 come to Louisiana. I mean, you knew where they had gone, you know. I mean, and I understand your point. I heard you earlier yeah. where it was more sort of navel-gazing about the yeah. Jesuits as opposed to, yeah. you know. And it, and you all wouldn't be the first. I mean, that, that, that institution wouldn't be the first one to see black bodies as something to be exchanged for currency in order to achieve your solvency. You wouldn't be the first ones to do that. So, yeah, I know it has, and I think it persists to this day, um, how the value of, of black lives and and respect for black humanity and dignity is something that is not highly vi- valued in this country and in this culture. You know, I mean, I, I'm give you a very personal example. Um, Friday, the article came out online. It was also the day that my son was scheduled to graduate from Brother Martin High School. And it was also the day that the police came to my house and told me that my son had been identified as a suspicious person in his neighborhood, the neighborhood he's lived in since middle school. So that's the way black bodies are viewed. That's the way in particular someone that I still see as the sweet, adorable boy I've already know, always known, and now that he's 18 years old, Society looks at him as some sort of suspicious entity simply because now yeah. he's grown into a black man. Right. So, yeah. you know, it all plays, it all, it all comes through to today. You know, yeah. there's, it's an unbroken chain. It's an unbroken chain. Maxine, you know? I haven't heard your voice for a couple of minutes. What's your feelings right now? Oh, I'm so glad Sandra shared what she shared because that is exactly right. It is unbroken. Um, actually, I think that it makes me say we're not African-Americans. We're descendants of American slaves. And slavery was an institution uh, created by America. Um, the, the whole idea of grouping people by different color groupings was made by America. And what they did about the slaves was to uh, dehumanize them to a degree in the minds of other people and... So when the slave system ended, the descendants uh, were still carrying the stigma of you don't want to mix with them because they're not quite fully human. Mm-hmm. And, and we have never really redefined in the mind of America that we are fully human and, full and, and, and worthy of full stature in America. Mm-hmm. America still does not see descendants of slaves as in their full status. Mr. Rothman? Yeah, I think, and I think this is one of the reasons why this, this, this story about Georgetown and slavery and the descendants is so important and has struck such a chord, because it really connects the past and the present. Uh, because, you know, I think as a historian, I really struggle against uh, the sense that, that, you know, the past is long ago, that history doesn't really matter, uh, that we should just get over it, um, but I think a story like this one, it, when we, when people like Maxine and Sandra can tell the stories of their families, and the continuing impact of racism today, it it connects the past and the present. You see mm-hmm. the connection. You can't deny it. Right. Uh, and I just think that um, it's incredibly important. So, so Mr. Rothman, what do you think the chances are? I think Sandra made such an important point about there not having been this effort to reach out and to come here. Mm-hmm. Um, can I be so bold as to suggest that 
um, somebody invite you you all to come here and perhaps um, or us to go there to participate in the working group. I think yes, it's important. I've made that uh, comment in an interview that uh, they need to come here and that we need to be a part of the conversations they're having about it. Mm-hmm. Some of the descendants, yes. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Mr. Rothman? Oh, I don't disagree. I think the descendants <laughs> must be part of the conversation. Uh, I think you are part of the conversation. Um, we have been hearing your voices, and I do think Georgetown has to do much more to reach out to descendants. And I would say not just in Louisiana, but descendants uh, of slaves mm-hmm. owned by the Maryland province uh, who mm-hmm. remained uh, remain behind. There's another community there. Hey, you know, do you know, uh, Mr. Rothman, if there was a subsequent sale, if that was the only sale? Because Miss Riffle is telling me that my great-grandmother, she came from Maryland, too, but at a later date. At a later date. At a later date. Yeah, I don't know of later yeah, we, sales by the Maryland province. There are certainly earlier sales, and there are sales all the way through the history, you know, the history of uh, Jesuit slaveholding. In, in fact, in that's and that's what she says. She's trying to figure out that her family name was Pendleton. She's trying yeah. to figure out when they got here, but they came from Maryland too. It's on my my great grandmother's death certificate that her birthplace is Maryland. So actually, uh, I, ha- I suspect that we are we are just opening the door a crack on a whole other branch of history of slavery, of institutional and religious institutions and public institutions. In other words, we tend to think of, uh, I don't know what the right word is here, but the word that popped into my mind was that the villains were the the plantation owners in the South. Well, they were. They were a business. All over this nation, though, Maxine. That's what I'm saying. Nothing went untouched. Absolutely. Nothing went untouched. Every aspect of the birth of this nation was was propped up by sleep. And 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 you just said, Mr. Rothman, that they were. This was not the only sale. That yeah. there were numerous sales. Yeah, and, this was and the biggest this... and the most uh, dramatic moment in the history of the Maryland province. But it certainly wasn't the only sale. And probably the not the only community in the country where this happened either. It it probably happened in other um, cities and other um, locales. It wasn't just Maryland, huh? Right. Yeah. I mean, when think, historians estimate that about a million African Americans were forcibly transported from the Upper South to the Deep South. A million. Yeah. You know, this is we're talking about 272 people right now, who are incredibly important. And each of those people was a life uh, with a history and a family. Uh, you know, but now multiply that uh, by you know thousands of times, and you begin to get a picture of. American slavery writ large. But I think our, the Georgetown story is a, is a kind of microcosm of the whole uh-huh. history of American slavery. Uh-huh. But it's, um, it's a microcosm with a very human face. You know, it's not an abstract concept. These are real people. Sandra and Maxine are real people. Their great-great-grandparents were real people. And I think this story helps us to grasp that reality, you know, much more firmly. Well, we have just started this conversation, haven't we? And again, my credit to the New York Times reporter. I'm not sure exactly how she happened on this story. Maybe it was someone in in at at um, 
uh, Georgetown that... It was uh, Richard Cellini from the Georgetown Memory Project. Okay. <laughs> so there you have it. Um, and I, I suspect that this is, again, just the beginning of another um, uh, trail, another line of discussion that adds to the contemporary discussion we're having, the Black Lives Matter discussion and the historic connections that that has. And needless to say, the whole statues controversy here in New Orleans, which is a very sad um, uh, moment also. Um, so I, I, I have to bring in somebody else on my show today that um, I promised uh, to uh, get some story out about the Birdfoot Conference because the gentleman who has been helping me with my radio show, Christoph Mergerson, who actually is from D.C., um, has been helping me so much, and I want to make sure to honor that with um, some words about the uh, festival that he's working on. So we're, we're going to... Um, we're going to end this discussion for the moment on the air, but um, I am uh, really looking forward and asking you, Sandra and Maxine and George. Um, Actually, it's Adam. Adam. It's, That's okay. I, I, I explained to Sandra already who I misnamed a couple of times. I, I have a real peculiar um, – I'm name disabled. That's what I am. I just came up with the expression, and, and it's not disrespectful. It's just uh, – a thing that I've lived with all my life and my mother before me, so I blame it on genes. It's not fair. But okay. Anyway, um, I, I hope that you will keep me informed as this goes forward and um, update me uh, and, and let us uh, um, use this show as a forum in part and uh, anything, you know, my nonprofit, the Creative Alliance of New Orleans, we, we look at important um, and environmental and social um, issues uh, uh, that we deal with and reflect on creatively, and so I, I look forward to um, to really continuing this. But, um, Mr. Rothman, I, I really do encourage you to maybe be a, an agent for this process of getting folks from here um, up to uh, up to um, Maryland and vice versa to get some folks from Georgetown to come here. I think that would be an incredibly important show of respect and interest and um, very emotional, I think, on both sides. Well, I'd love to help make that happen. Thank right. you. Thank you, all three of you. Maxine, again, um, did you want to... Uh, closing words from anybody. Closing words. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you decided to do the show, and um, it's an honor to hear from uh, Adam and to uh, connect with Sandra because I, I don't know her directly, but I feel like I do now. Well, we're going to get to know each other, I guarantee Great. you. <laughs> Sandra? Um, thank you, Jean, for hosting this. Um, I think we brought up some important points. Things are still open, you know. We have some places to go from. You started this with wanting to know what our plan was, where we're, where we're going from here. But I think we brought up some issues that we can latch on to and then progress forward, especially with more descendant involvement in the actual process. And Mr. Rothman, Adam? Ab yeah, absolutely. I, I echo that. I, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to, you know, to share this um, uh, you know, this platform with Maxine and, and Sandra, and uh, I hope it uh, will be the just the beginning. Great. Thank you all very, very much. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you making yourselves available. Um, I know you all um, have very busy lives. We're speaking with three very committed professionals 
uh, working. I, I know what it's like to work in City Hall, so I know what it's like, Sandra, to walk out the door in the middle of the day. And Maxine, um, we share a, a background in broadcast journalism. I, too, worked for WDSU here in New Orleans many years ago, so I know what your life is like and, and with the community commitments that you have. You're, you're such an activist, and I, I am uh, grateful to what you do for your community. And, um, and uh, Ms. Rothman, I'm going to have to get your book. Okay, Beyond great. Freedom's Reach, A Kidnapping in the Twilight of Slavery, and uh, follow up and learn more about you. And I expect to meet you sometime soon. And Maxine, I look forward to meeting you as well. So, so Sandra and Maxine, when you get yourselves together here in New Orleans, would you mind please making sure that I have there's a few moments for me as well? Certainly. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, all. And, um, You're welcome. I am now going to talk a little bit about um, the Birdfoot Festival that is ongoing right at this moment in New Orleans. And um, this is an extraordinary event because this is not your usual tomato festival or your, um, uh, you know, oyster festival or your, you know, shrimp and poor boys and whatever. This is um, chamber music. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with chamber music, um, I... uh, I'm a lover of it. It's 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 so beautiful because you know, in a way, it's a precedent to jazz music and the improvisation of jazz music. Even though it's not necessarily improvisational, um, it it can be both improvisational and not. And um, I want to um, also encourage the gentleman who's supposed to be on the air right now that I had asked somebody to secure the phone number for him, and I have to apologize that I don't have it at my fingertips. So um, if you're listening, please call in. You can call in on 260-9265, and we'll um, join you into my little uh, discussion here about this festival. So this it's called the Birdfoot Festival, guys. And for, I've heard of the Birdfoot Festival, but it's such an unusual name that I really did not understand for a long time Uh, what it meant. And um, through Christoph Mergerson, who's been working with me on my show, and he's so uh, wonderful a guy, and he's going to go off this summer to further his education in Rutgers in Jersey, and all power to him, but I sure wish he wasn't (laughs) leaving New Orleans. Um, I'm sure he'll be back, by the way. Um, I I, I know that uh, you have uh, an incredible program going on here, and I hope that... um, you can call in uh, as we talk, 260-9265. Um, so let me just tell you about some of the events that are happening so that you uh, can t- can tune in on them. Because, you know, it's not dry. It's not purely classic music. It is also um, really, uh, and I, I think I see the phone call coming in. Jazz, do you see the uh, call coming? I think um, maybe that's my gentleman. So, um, you know, there's a concert tonight, for example. This is this is not strictly classical and strictly dry. It's really kind of a mix. And tonight, for example, there's something called the Tango Labyrinth, and it's at um, uh, our friend Chuck Perkins' Cafe Istanbul in the um, Healing Center right there on St. Claude Avenue in the heart of the city. And um, it's it's... <laughs> You know, this is a concert of musical labyrinths, whatever that means, with Bach and Piazzolla and 
um, Argentine author Jorge Luis Borges. If I probably haven't pronounced it completely correctly. And then um, there will be a social tango dance following some of the conversation. And I think we now have Alex on the line. Is that you? Uh, yes, this is me. This is, oh, Alex, uh, I'm, I'm sorry for not having your, the phone number handy. So I'm, I'm glad that you um, were listening and were able to join us. So, um, so I'd like you, first of all, to just introduce yourself a little bit because you're one of the stars of the program. And, um, and then we'll talk more about the festival that's ongoing. Oh, sure. My name is Alex Fortes. I live in New York City, and I play violin. I grew up in San Diego, and I'm one of uh, about a dozen uh, festival artists that are, are playing this week at Birdfoot. And uh, we're, we have a whole bunch of different pieces that cover many centuries of, of music, and we're very excited about it. And and you're sort of what I love about it also is that you're in so many different locations. You know everything from Cafe Istanbul tonight uh, on Saint Claude Avenue to the CAC, and of course there's going to be some broadcasting on um, WWOZ, and then you have a gala concert at the Jazz Market on OC Haley Boulevard on Rutherford Haley Boulevard. So um, I, I enjoyed that also that you've made such a good use of of the city as your backdrop, and also you've engaged youth a lot in your program and you specifically in the orchestra that you work with have been serving youth. So tell me a little bit about that. The orchestra that I work with? or uh, Well, yes, uh, the orchestra that I work with and also the youth involvement in this particular um, festival here in New Orleans. Oh, oh, yeah. So, well, here, I agree with you. One of the most amazing things about it is that we got to play music in all these very distinct uh, environments and um, what, it, what it shows is that, that the music is versatile and, and the space itself is a part of the group of musicians that are communicating to the audience. And, and it's been really interesting already to see how when we were in the, uh, the, the mansion in, in Napoleonville at, at Maidwood as well as here at the CAC where we've been rehearsing in the various venues throughout the city, uh, we, we get to experience very different kinds of performances. And last weekend when we were at Maidwood, I got to work with a couple of amazing violinists who are part of the Birdfoot Young Artists Program, uh, who were, I believe, just about nine years old. One was in fourth grade and the other in fifth grade. And oh, my goodness. They were playing, they were playing a, a violin duet together, and it was they were so receptive and so quick to make connections between the music they were playing and their daily lives and and. Imagine uh, their their imaginations, uh, uh, telling stories with with music that was written. The, the piece that they were playing was a a duo, duo by De Berio, who was a French violinist and composer from the early 19th century. And it for them was it could have been written yesterday. It seemed to be totally natural. Then they were completely fluent in the language, and it was really rewarding in that way. Well, you know, we all are so aware of how talented the youth of New Orleans happen to be. In comparison to other places, I think the percentage of students in our schools who 
have a creative talent, a creative uh, bent, is um, is just enormous and and very uh, unusual. And so I'm glad uh, to hear also of their engagement with um, the uh, the chamber music and the classic music that. Um, uh, you performing. Tell me about some of the other performances that um, are involved and those that you're involved with as well as some of the others because I, I really want people to hear the, a little bit about the program that's, that's um, being presented. I think Jenna Sherry, the artistic director of the New Orleans Native, has done a really interesting job of weaving together some different things. And w- one of those programs is what we're doing tonight at uh, Cafe Istanbul. It's called a Tango Labyrinth and it takes the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, specifically this work called The Musical Offering that he wrote as a gift for the king of Prussia in the 18th century, who was a well-known flute player and who had issued a challenge to him to write a very complicated piece over a theme that the king himself wrote. And she she's found a way to weave the idea of this music, which tends to be very contrapuntal, which means that there's lots of different parts that are weaving in and out, similar to how you might imagine a musical labyrinth to be, with the works of Astro Piazzolla, who's a 20th century Argentine composer who is well known for incorporating tango idiom into classical music. And he was a bandoneon player himself, and bandoneon is this beautiful tango accordion. And it, um, so it was very interesting to uh, I think what, what we're doing tonight is seeing the way that these two things weave in and out of each other and there, there's similarities even though they're coming from completely different centuries along with the works of Jorge Luis Borges who's a Argentine writer of the 20th century who also wrote in a very uh, labyrinthine way and um, so yeah Alex uh, I, I I'm sorry to say that uh, I'm, I'm getting this sign language from my engineer and the reason you hear that music in the background is that we've actually run out of time uh, you oh. can imagine why um, uh, we pushed you a little bit and I'm sorry because of the kind of discussion we were having before you but um, tell everybody the way they can see the full program online and get tickets and go to these really beautiful performances if you go to our website, which is birdfoot, birdfootfestival.org, uh, you can find information about all the concerts. We have concerts tonight uh, and events Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and we'd love to see you at any and all of them. And that's Birdfoot Festival. And the reason.